Uh, he was the uh, evangelism and discipleship pastor at First Free. They've been teachers at uh, Faith Academy, which is the Christian or school for uh, missionaries in the Philippines. Uh, he's been an executive vice president at Slavic Gospel Mission, or Slavic Gospel, and uh, during the time when they were first going into entering Russia, I guess, at that time, Tom, is that right? That was quite an exciting time. I remember when uh, uh, the folks came in and talked to us about that, and uh, it, was, it was exciting. And he was with Barnabas International for eight years before uh, he and Linda began uh, First Love. And so First Love is a work that is in nine different regions in the world. Um, South America, Eastern Europe, Kenya, India, Nepal, South Korea, Philippines, and Indonesia. So they're, all, they're, they're quite diverse, spread out all over, and, and their work has really kind of transitioned mostly into orphans and widows' work, although uh, they do minister to other uh, Christian ministries overseas as well. Many of the people here at our church have been involved with supporting widows and orphans overseas, and it's been a blessing that you have, a real opportunity uh, to support their work. Uh, our pastor has been there in Nepal three times. Pastor Steve has been overseas three times, and our church has been uh, involved, with, uh, involved with ministries like the, the church and orphanage at Bakunde. Um, before they come up, though, I'd like to show you something here. Can, can anybody tell me what, what this means? It says, what is this, 59 at, at 59? Does anybody know what that is? You should. Miles, right. Miles, what was that? Yeah, what, what Tom does every year is he runs a, a mile equal to his age to raise support for First Love. This year, he's running 100. <laughs> not miles, kilometers. Okay, I want to get that right, Tom. You're not a, you don't look like you're 100 years old. He's going to be 60. Are you 62? You're 62 now. And so we and he's got some special things he wants to talk about. I'm going to ask him to come up here in a few seconds. But uh, this will give you an opportunity to kind of uh, I've asked that Tom, you know, help us expand our vision for overseas ministry. And uh, he's going to talk a little bit about that. And so uh, I want him to, uh, to come on up here now, Tom, if you could. Uh, Tom and Linda are, you know, champions of the faith, you know, they're our personal heroes. They really are. So we'd like to... Let's welcome Tom. Tom. Jamesy. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's very good to be with you this morning. And I uh, appreciate it so much. Uh, the opportunity. I know that Rock Valley Bible has been very active, like Phil mentioned, and supporting the work over in Nepal, especially. And some of you have been over there. And... Uh, Steve, I think, is going back in November uh, to do some teaching of pastors there, training. And uh, Bob and Bobby over there right now, uh, they just received a team uh, of Chinese Americans, first-generation Americans, uh, whose parents all come from China and Taiwan. Uh, and they just arrived, I think, early this morning. And uh, they'll be traveling into India, where they have two children's homes, as well as ministering throughout as Phil mentioned, you know, and I wasn't really planning on doing a little advertisement right now, but we will this year. Uh, it's a special, what uh, I call the big one that I've been shooting for ever since I turned 50 when I tried to run 50 miles at that time. I kind of geared my running to hit 50 when I turned 50. And uh, 
I thought that after that time I would kick it to kilometers uh, after 50 when I got to 51 because that would save me about 20 miles you know, if I did that. But it was, I was still uh, doing okay, so we've been raising it a mile every year, and now I've been shooting to hit 62 and still be standing so that we could have it be an even 100K. And so that's the big run this year on October 9th. And the goal is actually to raise 100K. So it's 100K for 100K. It has a nice little ring to it, but it's a big, big mega goal. And so what we've done is we're trying to get a few other people to run a little bit too that day, a 5 or a 10 or a 15 or 20 or a 50 or a 100K as well. Uh, and you also would try to run, raise a little bit of funds. They have some sponsors uh, sponsor you for each kilometer that you run. And so if you're interested in doing that, I've got a few people that want to try to do that on October 9th, then you can talk to me after the service. Uh, Linda and I have been really spearheading First Love's work into Kenya, uh, where we bought five acres of land in Nairobi about three years ago, and we're developing a children's home over there, although I'm also the director and founder. And we, we started First Love, it'll be 10 years in February, and the Lord has been blessing as uh, Bob and Bobby joined us uh, shortly after that and uh, have now started about seven different children's homes in Nepal and India and have been involved also in Thailand when we had the tsunami relief that we did there. And, uh, and our son lives over in the Philippines uh, with uh, 30 other First Love missionaries in the Philippines and his wife and two of their three children have been born over there in the Philippines now. And uh, so most of our missionaries, expat missionaries, meaning American or Canadian or wherever they might be from, uh, live in the Philippines. Most of our missionary work is there. There's uh, Faith Academy, the missionary kids' school is there. We have a Ph.D. in Old Testament teaching at an international seminary and uh, several other types of work. We're even involved in church planting uh, there, but we're not planting First Love Churches we're, and we're involved in church planting in Nepal as well. Uh, we are seeking to work through national pastors and assist them in planting the church. And so it's an indigenous, uh, local, community-based Bible church uh, rather than a denominational base. And uh, we do a lot with uh, medical clinics, uh, feeding programs. So we've served over 2 million meals now in Kenya uh, to orphan children in the last uh, five years. And so we do humanitarian work, but it's coupled with the gospel. Everything we do involves evangelism, creative evangelism. We're seeking to present the gospel and do what I tell our short-term teams when they come over. We attempt to do the good work so we have the opportunity to share the good word with people and share the gospel. And so that's where we're at. Uh, I need to set up a little bit of housekeeping here because I brought a few things I want to show you as we move along, and I need to have it handy so I can get at it when I uh, need it. Some people call me a carpetbagger because I bring this along. It looks like it from uh, from Nepal that it came from, and then I've got a little blanket here from uh, the Philippines the tribes there, and I'm hiding a couple of things in here that I'll reveal at the right time. Um, you know, we have an opportunity to see lots of different types of people 
all around the world, especially as we're in and out of airports. Uh, you know, people watching is kind of a fun sport, isn't it? I mean, if you want to see some different types of people, go to Walmart. <laughs> you have a great time. Uh, it's interesting how in the dead of winter, somebody might show up with their pajamas on at Walmart. You know, they, they, you know, just kind of stumble out and I need to go get some milk or something like that. And it's a casual world we live in. Uh, and uh, I'm feeling kind of stuffy right now, but I might re- uh, uh, take this jacket on, off a little bit later. But, uh, you know, there's uh, psychologists uh, tell us that there's four main types of people, personality types of people. I remember when I was a pastor at First Free, I would give a personality inventory test called the DISC. And you've probably heard of that, you know, D-I-S-C, which is like a driver, an influencer, uh, a steady, relating type person, or a cautious, a more calculating person. And you've heard of the type A. The type A is the driver, the dominant, uh, the lion, kind of like uh, Paul and uh, Sarah. The type B is the influencer type of more like an otter, uh, like Peter and Ruth, type B. The type C is a cautious, uh, more introspective uh, thinker type person. Uh, and that would relate to the beaver uh, or uh, Thomas and Esther. And then last, the type D is a steady and submissive, uh, more relating type person, like a golden retriever. Uh, like Moses and Hannah. And so he got the type A, B, C, and D. Now, I was reading uh, not too long ago about another type of person, which is uh, Frank, uh, psychologist Frank Farley has called the thrill-seeking personality, or the type T, the type who loves to do extreme sports, like uh, paragliding and base jumping and uh, uh They're drawn into high-risk sports for the thrill of it all. So they're type T's. And sometimes those people really get themselves into big trouble. And they do it for the adrenaline rush, you know, the extreme sports. Now, John Ortberg, who's from Rockford originally, has written a book called If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. Have any of you ever seen that book? If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. Well, in that book, he talks about water-walking personalities, type Ws. Now, type Ws are also willing to take risks to get out of their comfort zone. And that would be related to being willing to get out of the boat, you know, to get out of your comfort zone and get into kind of a risky situation. But the type Ws are doing that in order to bring glory to God in order to get out on the edge of where people are lost and they're about to slip into hell unless someone comes out there to rescue them. And so that's a type W. They're not into extreme sports so much, although maybe they like to do that once in a while too, but they're what we could call extreme disciples that are willing to take risks. Now, Paul and Barnabas were called risk-takers. In Scripture, in uh, Acts chapter 15, uh, verses 25 and 26, they were called men who have risked their lives 
for the cause of Christ. Men who were willing to go out there and go for it. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, I know that Dr. Brandon likes to uh, engage in a sport, and I don't know if you could call it an extreme sport or not, but it's a sport that uh, might seem extreme at times, and it involves one of these things. And, you know, I like to play this sport myself uh, whenever I have the time. And, And I know that with a golfer, when you're saying... Going for it, it means something. I'm going for it. Now, I remember one time when I was playing golf with some friends, and, and, you know, as usual, I hit my drive, and it slid on off to the right, and it got underneath some trees. And, uh, but I could see the green from between the branches. And so I'm looking out there, and you have to be, have a good sense of imagination, and thinking through your shots. That's what they always said about Woods. You know, Tiger Woods, he has a good imagination in trying to form a shot and getting it to work out so that he can go for it. And so on this particular day, I, I felt very risky, and I saw that the trunk of the tree kind of split off into a Y, and it looked like there was a window of opportunity out there for me. And so I thought, if I could just hit this three-iron and keep it low enough, it might be able to just make it to that fork of the trunk and bounce and get onto the green. So I thought it was worth the effort. I'm going for it. So I got down there. And you know, when you're trying to hit a low shot, you're supposed to hit it off your right foot. And so I get back there. And you got to keep the, the club low to the ground on your takeoff. And so I thought that I swung just right. And I hit it. And it sailed. And it was just going perfect. And plunk, it hit the tree and bounced back at me. And I had to start all over again. But, but I said, I'm going for it. And I'm going to see if I can make it. And so when we go for it, sometimes it works. And sometimes it doesn't. That's what a risk is. We're not sure how it's going to turn out. Now, I'm not talking about golf today. I am talking about the Apostle Paul, however. And I'd like you to open up your scriptures, your Bibles, to Philippians chapter 3. And I want to read a little testimony of Paul that he gave towards the end of his life. You know, he's in chains at this point in uh, jail in, uh, in Rome, and he's reflecting on his life. And so in Philippians chapter 3, he gives a little testimony. Beginning with verse 7. We'll read 7 through 11 right now. Philippians 3, 7 through 11. He is just, at the beginning of chapter 3, he talks about how he was a Hebrew of Hebrews and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the best tribes, and a Pharisee, and he had great zeal for the law, and he persecuted the church. And so those were things that would make a Pharisee very proud. You know, the list of accomplishments that he had. But now that he had his encounter with Jesus Christ and he's lived uh, quite a long life as the greatest church planter the world has ever known, he's writing this to his fellow believers. He says, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, 
for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Now notice this verse here, verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His suffering, becoming like Him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. He says, I want to know Christ. Now don't you think that he should have known Christ by now if he was the greatest church planter and he's been a believer for so many years and now he's close to going to be with Christ? But he's saying, still saying, I want to know Christ. I want to pursue Christ. I want to chase after him. When I first uh, went to seminary, Phil mentioned that I was a probation officer. Actually, I did a lot of things before I went off to seminary. I was a juvenile probation officer, then an adult felony probation here in Winnebago County. Then I got a master's in teaching and taught behavior disorder kids for five years in the Harlem School District. Started my own painting and decorating business during that time and wallpapering and woodworking and all those kinds of things. And Bob worked for me also because he was a teacher too. I actually quit teaching altogether to do it full time. And then uh, the Lord got a hold of me uh, through my experience as a layman in the church. And I realized that, and it was from a sermon from Philippians actually, uh, that LaRue Lindquist was preaching that Sunday back in 1980. And it was on joy. And that's what Philippians is all about. It's the book of joy. And, uh, and I remember as LaRue was speaking about joy, I couldn't help but think, well, when had I been experiencing true joy in my life? And I had to say when I was ministering with people. As a layman, I was a deacon, and I was, uh, part of my responsibility was to visit the elderly and do uh, services at homes like Fairhaven and some of the other nursing homes in town and to visit the sick and go to the jail and do some services at the jail. And we worked with the youth. And so the, the Lord used those experiences to cause me to say, I, that's when I have joy. And so the next thought, which I really believe was from God, was you should be doing that full time. <laughs> and so I made preparations then to go to Trinity. And so I started at Trinity Seminary in January 81. And ever since that time, we've been involved in various types of ministries, and the Lord has used that. But as I started seminary in January 81, I had Warren Wiersbe as a professor uh, in one of my first classes at Trinity. And uh, he was a lover of A.W. Tozer. Tozer was his hero. I mean, he knew Tozer from when he was alive, and, and, and he did uh, read all of his books. And so one of the books that we had to read that quarter was The Pursuit of God. A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God. And I found out that Tozer wrote that book in the year I was born, in 1948. And he literally wrote the book while he was on his knees. It's only ten chapters, about ten pages a chapter. And so what we did during that quarter is we read one chapter per week. And we had to do more than that, but we read one chapter a week. And then we just wrote a little response to that, a one-page response. And there are some deep things in that book. I'd highly recommend that book, The Pursuit of God. 
But in the book also, Tozer points out uh, this. The moment we come to Christ in regeneration is not an end. A lot of times when we use that term, when did you come to know Jesus, we're talking about, well, when did you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? When did you come to know Him for the first time? But what Tozer is saying here is it's not an end, but an inception. It's a birth. For now begins the glorious pursuit, the heart's happy exploration of the infinite riches of the Godhead. That is where we begin, I say, but where we stop, no man has yet discovered, for there is in this awful and mysterious depths of the triune God neither limit nor end. So that's how he gets the term the pursuit of God. So in the scripture that we're going to look at this morning, Philippians 3, 12 through 14, it's a, a key to Paul's success as a man of faith, a man of God who sought to go for it, for Jesus, and get to know him, to pursue him. And these verses are written as though they're like a race, you know, which kind of relates to my life. And that I've been a runner for so many years. Uh, I took up running the first time we went to the Philippines in 81. And I've learned so much through that. And so, Paul's desire of his life goes hand in hand with what David recorded in Psalm 63.8. Where he says, My soul followeth hard after thee. Jesus Christ is the pace setter as David and Paul and so many of the saints of old have sought to follow hard after him, to stick close behind him as he guides them. And that's, of course, what he called his first disciples to. He said, follow me. Follow me. I'll lead the way. And so let's look at these verses. Uh, Philippians three, twelve through 14. So he's already talked about his desire to know Christ. And now he says in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained all this, I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So there's four characteristics that actually Wiersbe introduced me to years ago that I'd like to share with you now. And they're all likened to being involved in a race, the Christian race, which isn't a sprint, that's for sure. It's more like a long-distance classic. And I learned something as I got more involved in longer runs and marathons. I've had an opportunity to run several marathons over the years where I actually raced and trained and tried to do my best, you know, to increase my time and, or decrease my time and, and uh, run as quickly as possible. But as I got into runs that were over twice a marathon and even longer, I realized that I needed to study about what's called an ultramarathon. And an ultramarathon, you have to train a lot more differently for than a marathon. 
marathon you can prepare for and eating your meals, you can do what's called carbo-loading. You know, and have a lot of pasta and, and bread and, and uh, uh, things like that, uh, maybe the day before the run, and just get all loaded up so your muscles are all set uh, with these carbs. And I would always eat a lot of bananas, you know, to get potassium and have my electrolytes up as high as they should be. And then you can go out and try to do 26.2 miles and, and live off of that food that you ate the night before. Or even early in the morning, I'd have pancakes to give me more carbs and drink plenty of liquids. And you might just make it, you know, without getting totally depleted as long as you kept yourself hydrated during the run. But as I began to run these longer runs, I learned by experience that you get burned out. You cannot live off of the food you had before the run and make it that distance because all the carbs are burned up after 24, 25 miles. That's it. You know, you're depleted. You're going to hit the wall unless you're having nutrition as you run. And so that's something that I had to learn to do was to eat and to drink like a liter of liquids every hour. And this thing's going to take 13, 14 hours from the time I start to the time I end. And so that's a lot of liquid you're taking in. And as we live our life and run the Christian race, we also have to carbo-load with the bread of life. We have to hydrate with living water that comes from the Holy Spirit. And that's how we grow to know Him. You know, Pastor Steve and his family, I think, are heading for Yellowstone, or they're there now. And out in Yellowstone, I think, isn't that where Old Faithful is? In Yellowstone? Yeah, Old Faithful. You know, and, and some people wonder, well, how do you know that Old Faithful is faithful? How do we know that? I mean, I'm saying that Paul is saying that he wants to be a man of faith here. By faith, he's, he, he knows that he can learn more about Christ. By faith. He's considered a man of faith. We cannot increase our faith by trying harder. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be a man of faith. I'm going to try hard to be a man of faith. How do we come up, become a man of faith? Well, how do you learn about Old Faithful? And if Old Faithful is faithful and reliable, you've got to spend time with Old Faithful. Don't just read about Old Faithful. Go visit Old Faithful. And sit there and watch Old Faithful and see how reliable Old Faithful is. And I've learned actually through study that Old Faithful is not quite as reliable as she used to be. And that the times of the eruptions are changing a little bit from year to year. The height of the shooting of the water up in the air varies uh, from 100 to 160 feet or something like that. But the average time between intervals in intervals of the eruption is about 93 minutes. So about every 93 minutes, Old Faithful will go off and be faithful. Now, how can we increase our faith in God? We need to spend time with God. As we spend more time with God, that increases our faith in God. Because we learn through experience about God and how he deals with us. And so the first characteristic I want to talk about with Paul that he mentions here, he says, not that I've already obtained all this. Dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction. He's not satisfied with what he has accomplished thus far in his life. 
You know, a serious a serious athlete is never satisfied by past performance. They're forever trying to push themselves and do better and get a better personal record for their time. And that's what I always used to try to do. I'd try to lower my personal record, my PR, when I'd go out and try to run a mile. And I was always trying to chase after the elusive marathon where I could break three hours uh, and get under a seven-minute mile average. Uh, even though I was like 33 when I started running marathons. And uh, there were times when I'd run four, five, six marathons in a year. So I've done over 65 marathons over the years. And so I would try to see if I could, I gotta get my, I'd be out there training and I'd even be trying to do personal records when I'm training, you know, trying to break that timeline. And I could, and I got into one run in the Philippines and I remember I held it to where I did a half in less than an hour and a half. And so I thought, well, hey, if I could just keep this up, even though it's hotter than blazes in Manila, you know, and you're perspiring and you're losing, I'm losing a whole lot more than I'm gaining because I was afraid to drink too much water over there. And, uh, but before long, boom, you know, you hit the wall and you're totally wasted. And I realized that I'm just too big. Now, you don't see a guy 6'5", and 200 pounds or more breaking seven-minute miles too consistently. When you look at the Olympic marathon, who do you see out there ahead? It's my friends, the Kenyans, who I see training uh, in Nairobi, uh, running around, and they're winning it, and they're just little flyweight guys. They're about this tall, and they weigh 120 pounds. But one time, when I ran Madison Marathon, it's called the Mad City Marathon, guess what? They had just the class for me. They had what they called the Clydesdale division for marathon. You know, normally it's based on your age bracket. And they had age bracket too, but they had the Clydesdale division. And this division was for 200 pounders and over. And I was exactly 200 pounds right on the button. And I won the Clydesdale division. I got this special award, you know, a painting and different things like that. And so that was so cool uh, to win the Clydesdale division in the marathon. But... So a serious athlete is never satisfied. They are not content to live on the past, uh, past glory, and they're not settling for past defeat either. We also should not be satisfied with our Christian lives. Paul is saying here, not that I've already obtained all this. I need to keep pressing on. Now, what I've discovered with too many of us is that we are too much in the comfort. I remember I had a man from Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama. He is a real down-south, down-home boy. And he was with us in Kenya a few years ago. <clears throat> and, uh, excuse me, where we do our ministry there in Nairobi, it's in the Kabera slum. The Kabera slum is one million people living on 600 acres. And it's... It's a zoo. I mean, it is one pit of death, disease, and despair, and desperation, and it's a rough place. It's the most needful place on earth that I've ever seen. And I've been all around the world, uh, in Calcutta and many other places, and it is unbelievable uh, what people exist on there. It's very much a hand-to-mouth society where they buy one meal at a time, and they have no, they don't need a pantry or anything. They just have one room with a dirt floor and dirt walls, and, and that's what they live in. And, uh, but anyway, uh, Pete, 
uh, Webster was with us, good old Pete, and he said to me when he was walking around Cabrera, he said, hey, brother, you got to know I'm way out of my comfort zone right now. I am way out of my comfort zone. We are too much into comforts. We want to be comfortable. God comforts us to bring that same comfort to others, not to make us comfortable. And so that's what we want to seek to do. They live our lives in which we are not satisfied. Charles Stanley wrote a book several years ago that really got my attention. Uh, It's called Confronting Casual Christianity. And in that book, he talks about the fact that we have been numbed with the novocaine of indifference. Numbed with the novocaine of indifference. That's called complacency. Complacency is when you're just indifferent about things. I've got some, this is like Novocaine here. I had a, a bad owie in my mouth. I mean, that hurt bad. And so I went to my dentist, uh, Dr. John O'Brien, and he, when he gives you a shot of Novocaine, what he does is he puts a little something on your gum first, which actually kills the pain of even feeling the needle go into your jaw, and it just freezes your mouth. And so he gave me some of that anesthetic to swish around in my mouth and you know, my tongue was paralyzed and everything. I couldn't feel a thing in my mouth. And so this is like a, no, a pre-Novocaine Novocaine that I have here. If anyone's got a cold sore, let me know. I'll let you have a little swig of this thing and it might help you. But the Novocaine dulls our senses. I remember Wearsby years ago told me in our class, our small class that we had in uh, pastoral duties uh, and He said, you know, too often we look at people like they're part of the scenery. You ever go out and do a, on a, a, you have an agenda item on your schedule and you go and there's people all around, but you don't even notice them. They're just part of the scenery. And that happens a lot of times when we're overseas. You know, we just, we see this mass of people out there and they're just part of the scenery because you're not focusing in upon them individually like Jesus Christ would. So they're scenery. Another way that we look at them is they're machinery. They're something that, somebody that we can use to help us accomplish a task. So they become machinery. But the third way is the way Christ looked at people where it was an opportunity to show forth love to them. And so they're either scenery, machinery, or opportunity. And so rather than, we need to get out of our comfort zone and not be satisfied with what Christ has done through us to date. We don't retire from our faith, but we stay actively involved in going for it. Wiersbe wrote a book called uh, Living Above the Level of Mediocrity, Chuck Swindoll. And that talks about the difference between eagles and parrots. You know, we... Uh, Phil read earlier from Psalm 42 about the eagle. Mount up with wings like eagles. Eagles are not content to sit on a little perch like a parrot. Parrots are very content to sit on a perch and to pick at seeds day in and day out and feel a little snuggle and a little scratch on their feathers and, and be comforted from someone who has them as a pet. But eagles wouldn't put up with that. They've got to soar and they've got to go over after fresh meat every day. Uh, 
fresh from the Himalayan highlands. And I saw eagles up there in the Himalayan highlands uh, because I did some parrots jumping up there. Uh, but it was a little Nepali guy was my pilot. And Bob did it before too. We ran off the Himalaya mountains and we were flying on this uh, little glider thing. And it was a little bit crazy, but uh, it was fun. But we saw eagles soaring up there. But you know what else we saw? We saw vultures up there too. And those vultures were kind of licking their beaks, uh, saying, ooh, I hope they hit hard. So, not comparing your running with others is an important thing for an athlete who's a runner. <clears throat> Early on, we look at others. Early on in our Christian life, we look at others who are believers, and they're our models. They're the ones who we seek to be like. We find someone that's kind of our Christian hero, and we think, well, I, I want to be like Mike. I want to be like him. And so early on in our life, we look at others. As we begin to mature in our faith, we look at ourselves and we consider how we've grown, you know, what habits we've gotten over and, and how we're uh, developing in our spiritual maturity. Uh, we're more concerned about others than we once were. But as we grow closer to Christ, we look only to Him, to Jesus, who is the pacer, the pacemaker. So dissatisfaction is the first mark of an extreme disciple, one who is seeking to go for it in their pursuit of God. Secondly, Paul says in verse 13, he says, One thing I do. One thing. Successful athletes specialize in one particular sport. It's hard to be really good and an athlete of excellence in several different sports. I mean, once in a while we see that with those that can do the decathlon and others that are multi-sport gold medalists or whatever, but it's very, very rare. My granddaughter right now, who's 12, uh, who's done some running with me, she's she attends Rockford Christian now, and last year she wanted to go out for every sport. You know, she was out for two sports the first season, and then, then basketball, and then track, and cross country, and volleyball, all these things. And so I've been asking her this summer, well, which one do you like the most? She said, I don't know. You know, I like them all. And so because of that, she's not really practicing any of them this summer. <laughs> I said, if you want to be good at one, you've got to pick out what your favorite is and spend time with that sport. And practice shooting if you like basketball, you know, because then you might be able to hit the basket once in a while when you're heaving it up towards the, towards the rim. And so, one thing I do, Paul says. Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing I desired of the Lord, that I will seek after. One thing I desired of the Lord. When you think of your Christian life, think about one point. Like in a spear. What one thing must you do? Like a spear tip. Ending at a spear tip and go for it. Rather than considering your life like a broomstick. Oh, this is an old broomstick. Look at all the ends on that broomstick. All the goals, you know, from this broomstick, you know, to be able to do a good job sweeping the floor. Well, it's hard to sweep the floor with a, with a sword. But what one thing must you do? 
Paul's one thing he must do above all else. He says, I want to know Christ and the power that raised him from the dead in his resurrection. That is what caused Paul to be an extreme disciple, one who wanted to go for it with his life and to risk all to follow him. One thing I desire to do. He's devoted to that. That's our second D. Devoted to one thing. Devotion. So dissatisfaction is the first point and devotion is the second. One thing I do. I heard a story about a chicken and a pig. Now, this is a little fictitious story. I'll use a little littler uh, preacher license to tell this story for the kids. The adults can look in. This chicken and pig were walking down the street one day and they saw this sign out in front of First Baptist Church and they saw that they were going to have, the Women's Missionary Society was going to have a special bacon and egg breakfast to raise money for missions. And so, I mean, the chicken looked at the uh, pig and said, Well, isn't this wonderful that we can have a part in helping missionaries around the world? And the pig looked at the chicken and said, Yeah, this man, i got to get my thing out of here. Got to get my little thing out of here. He says, yeah, that's easy for you to say. Yours is just a donation. Mine is a total commitment. (laughs) That's easy for you to say to make a little donation to what's going on. And many of us, you know, we're, we're content to make a donation. But what Christ wants is a total commitment, a total devotion of everything that you have within you. And as we give him everything, every little room in our home, and I've heard it said that the room for improvement is the biggest room in the house, and that's why we shouldn't be dissatisfied uh, or be satisfied with our life, be dissatisfied, because the room for improvement is the largest room in the house. But be devoted. Jeremiah 29.13 says, You will seek me and find me, when you seek me with all of your heart, when you seek me with all your heart, then you'll find me. The French Foreign Legion has their motto, kind of their esprit de corps, which says, if I stumble, or if I falter, push me on. If I stumble, pick me up. If I retreat, shoot me. Now, that's a pretty tough motto. If I retreat, shoot me. You know, shoot me in the back as I'm running away. No, please don't do that. Just encourage me to come on back. You know, we'll be all right. Yeah, we'll try to protect you. And I was, uh, I came across an old note in my Bible that someone mentioned. Uh, actually, I got out one of my old Bibles that I used years ago. And in that Bible, it mentioned Churchill and blood, sweat, and tears. Now, how many of you remember the rock group Blood, Sweat, and Tears? Now, that was a group that I was kind of into back when I was in college. What goes up must come down, spinning wheels, all these kinds of things. Blood, Sweat, and Tears were a pretty cool group, but I didn't realize that this is where they got their name from. Churchill, when he first came in on his very first day as being appointed the new prime minister, 
of England, he gave the probably the most powerful call to arms that is ever given in the history of motivational speeches. And that was at a time when Nazi Germany was marching across Europe seeming seemingly unstoppable as they went from place to place. And London was being threatened and all of the UK was being threatened. And so in this crisis, uh, I want to just read a couple paragraphs that Churchill told the House of Parliament on May 13, 1940. He says, In this crisis, I hope I may be pardoned if I do not address the House at length today. I hope that any of my friends and colleagues or former colleagues who are affected by the political reconstruction will make all allowances for lack of ceremony which it has been necessary to act. I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggling and suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, with all of our might and with all of our strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard, the road may be, for without victory, there is no survival. Let that be realized. No survival for the British Empire. No survival for all the British Empire has stood for. No survival for the urge and impulse of the ages that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. At this time, I feel entitled to claim the aid of all. And I say, come then. Let us go forward together with our united strength. All he had to offer was his blood, toil, tears, and sweat. I remember we used to sing a song about all I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, but he made something beautiful of my life. All we had to offer God is all we got. Be totally devoted to him. Thirdly, Paul goes on to say, after he says this one thing I do, he says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Direction. That's his direction. He's forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead. I've heard it said that we shouldn't allow ourselves to be crucified between two thieves. The regret of the past and the fear of the future. But that we should live this day, the present. Today is the present. That's why it's called the present. So live it that way. I heard about a bird over in Australia. I think it was one from my, one story from one of my Australian mates uh, who I met in the Philippines years ago. He was talking about this crazy bird that has its eyes kind of back towards the middle of its head 
And the eyes are able to spin around, kind of like these lizards. You see, I caught a lizard like that over in Nairobi on our children's home property that can pivot its eyes and it can look. With one eye, it can look backwards, this bird, and with the other eye, it can look forwards. And this lizard can do the same thing. They pivot around like that. And so I think the name of this bird is called the loony bird. Because this crazy lunar bird, it doesn't fly, but it can run, you know, kind of like an ostrich or something. And it's always banging into things and knocking over things because it's always looking behind him rather than in front and to see where it's going. And that can happen to us too because we're always looking to the back and we're remembering something that knocked us for a loop and it's discouraging us today or we're looking too far ahead and we begin to panic and we wonder how we're ever going to get there. That's happened to me with running, especially when I ran the Boston Marathon the first time and I was going up Heartbreak Hill <laughs> and I was looking up there, how am I going to get up this hill? That's why I try to keep my eyes focused you know, on my feet and just take one step at a time. Before I know it, I'm halfway up and then I just keep going one step at a time rather than looking too far up the path because it can be overwhelming in our lives too. I remember when I was going to Trinity Seminary and I was trying to work and support a family of a couple of kids and everything else and wondering how am I ever going to get through these classes when you look at the syllabus of all that you got to do and all the books you got to read and all the papers you got to write and all this stuff. I thought, man, I'm never going to get through this. And then I got four classes like that or five. So I learned to focus upon the moment, upon the day, upon that particular time and seek to milk it for all I could get out of it. And before you know it, you're stringing days together. And so, we need to be going in the right direction. Isaiah 40, which Phil read, uh, verses 29 to 30, speak of the fact of how we must wait upon the Lord and He will renew our strength and then we'll mount up with wings like eagles. We have to wait upon Him to move out and to guide us in the direction that we should go. And then He'll give us that strength that the Holy Spirit provides through mounting us up with wings like eagles. Finally, well, I want to say with that point, because this is something the kids got to get in their notes now. I'm not supposed to tell you when it's coming up, but this is something you don't want to forget. Winning runners keep moving. They keep moving. They know where they are going and don't want to dwell on the past or look too far down the road. They keep moving. Now, a winning runner won't sit and wait. (laughs) Now, when we're running the Christian life and we're seeking to follow Christ, there's moments when He'll allow you to rest and sit down and relax. Now, even when I do my 100K, or attempt to do the 100K, I'm not going to sit down in a chair and rest for a while because if I do, I'll never get back up again and be able to move. Rigor mortis will set in, and that'll be it. You know, I won't be able to bend my knees or anything else. But once I finish, then it's boom, crash and burn time, and I fall asleep. One year, I actually literally fell asleep in the arms of my brother Pat and another guy that was standing at the finish line. I fell asleep. They thought I fainted, but I can remember snoring, and I woke myself up. I was so exhausted, my body said, you're done, boom, okay, thank you very much. I'm done. That's all I'm going to do today. I've been on my feet for 13 hours without sitting and moving along. And uh, now I'm in a 
crash and burn and rest. But during our life, God doesn't expect us to live that way. To keep going full bore and to strive like this, you know, with all that we got to keep running and judging, but we, we can be striving and pursuing while we're relaxing and reading a book uh, and uh, while we're resting and sleeping. And so don't get me wrong into thinking that uh, we got to keep on pressing, pressing it. Then finally, in verse 14, Paul says, I press on. I press. Press on toward the goal to which the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Determination. I press on. I'm determined to finish this race. This word press on carries intense zeal. It's a strain to overextend oneself, to keep pressing on even though you're weary and you feel like, I just can't go on, I want to give up. I want to cash it in. I'm done. I'm done with my service. I've been serving the Lord for 30 years now. It's time for somebody else to do it. I don't need to do it anymore. I'm just going to go retire down in Florida and play golf the rest of my life. And that's the way I'm going to rest. I'm done with service. That's not the way the Lord wants us to live our life. We need to be determined and keep seeking to bring others into His kingdom, to be an influencer. It's like an upward climb. The upward climb that you read about, maybe years ago you read the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Some of you maybe read it just after it came out, back in 1678. I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I was there when he wrote the last page. Uh, but in that book he talks about Christian and they're, they're trying to climb up this mountain to get to the celestial city. And it takes an extreme effort to do that. It takes effort sometimes for some of us to even take one step because of the pain that we feel. Years ago in the 1968 Mexican Olympics in, in Olympics in Mexico City, I'm sure many of you heard this story in the past, but there was a runner from Tanzania there named John Stephen Aquari who was doing the marathon. And the marathon began in the stadium and went out on some mountains around the city and then it would circle around and come back into the stadium at the end. But shortly after the beginning of the run, as they were making a sharp curve, you know, because there's a lot of runners at the beginning that are sprinting out trying to get ahead and he was bumped and he went tumbling down a cliff and got all banged up and cut up on his knee and and, uh, was basically out of the race. But what he did is he got himself up anyway and, and he tried to brush himself off and he took his shirt and kind of tied it around his leg where it was bleeding and he began hobbling in, uh, trying to still finish the course. And so a couple hours after everybody else was done, he's comes. people knew that he was still out there. The word came and so people stayed there to watch as this guy's kind of limping around the track to finish. And he finished it, and, and a reporter, they came to him, and they said, well, John, why didn't you just stop? You know, people would have understood you were injured, you got hurt, and you were bleeding, and, and there would have been no problem if he just pulled out of the race at that time. And what he said was, my country did not send me to Mexico to start the marathon. 
they sent me to Mexico to finish the marathon. I had to finish. I've got some medals here that I want to show you. You know, when I run a marathon, or when I have, I'm not really competing in marathons anymore because I've had to slow my pace way down now in order to do these longer runs. But what they do is, at the end of the marathon, they give what they call a finisher's medal. Everyone who finishes gets a medal. Everybody's a winner that finishes. So this is one that I'm kind of proud of. This is from Boston Marathon that I got back in 1993. I did it again in 96. This is one I got from New York City, which was kind of an interesting marathon all around the city and the different boroughs there where my dad grew up, going through the Bronx and all these different places, starting on Stanton Island. And then here's one that was probably the most unique. This is called the Siberian International Marathon. <laughs> I ran this in Siberia, Russia. And Linda was there with me and a couple other young ladies. And, and we raised money for a children's home that we helped start in central Siberia, in Omsk, Siberia. So the point I'm making, though, is that everyone who finishes gets the medal. Everyone who finishes their Christian life, seeking to follow God right to the end, gets that crown, gets that special, well done, my good and faithful servant. Be determined. 2 Corinthians 4 speaks of some of the trials that we go through in our life. And Paul went through a lot of them. Probably a lot worse type of trials than what we'll ever face. But in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7-9, through 9, I'd like to read a little bit. That He says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that His all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We feel like we're struck down, but we're not destroyed. And we need to be willing to get back up. In Proverbs 29, it says that though a man be knocked down seven times, a righteous man, he gets back up. So what is our our purpose? What is our our aim in life? What one thing must we do? You probably heard Steve has probably mentioned this in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And the best way that we can glorify God is to go for it. But in order to do that, we've got to be willing to work out. We've got to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I've walked probably over 30,000 miles now working out over the years uh, from my physical running. And yesterday I was out running, you know, from peak fitness into rock cut and around the lake and back again in the heat and thinking, oh man, it sure would be nice to just stop. <laughs> but people ask me, why do you run? And I say, because it feels so good when I stop. <laughs> you masochist, you. What's wrong with you? But we keep on working out our salvation by getting into God's Word, working out our faith by coming close to the real faithful one, God. He is faithful and He will do it.
as we come close to Him, we realize that He will give us the power to do it. So we're not going to be able to run this life and pursue God simply by reading about it, simply by hearing sermons about it and lectures. We've got to do it. We've got to work out. James 1.22 is one of my favorite passages where it says, do not merely listen to the Word, do what it says. And you know, when I run my runs and when I run this 100K, I'm not going to be wearing a jacket like this. And if you don't mind, I'll, I'll try to look more like some of our friends in the congregation. And I probably won't wear a tie like this when I'm out there running either. And I don't think I'm even going to wear a white shirt like this one when I'm out running. It might be white, but it won't be like this one buttoned up. It's just not comfortable for what I need. What I'm going to do is I'm going to wear a shirt similar to this one. That When we uh, have our teams come overseas with us, and I know that this slogan, just do it, was started by Nike. That's one of my favorite slogans. I wear a shirt like this quite often to remind me, I want to just do it. I am a doer. The kind of person that wants to get it done. We hear about it so often, about getting involved in missions, about sharing love with somebody, about visiting somebody or bringing some cookies to somebody to encourage them. We hear about it so often, but how about just doing it? Going for it. And so I don't wear a shirt like that. I don't wear shoes like this. Can you imagine we're trying to wear penny loafers out there running? You know, I don't wear socks like this. I would be laughed right off the bike path if I was running around wearing socks like this. Look at that. That would be weird. No, I don't wear socks like that. I wear, I wear socks like this. See, they got that little Nike swoosh on there, and they remind me how my feet are like lightning bolts, you know, just going along. Uh, and you know what Nike means, literally? It's, it was the Greek god of speed. Nike was a Greek goddess. Now, we know that that's not true, but that's how they got the word Nike. And so I've got these lightweight socks that kind of whisk the perforation, whisk the perforation away from your feet. And these are the kind of shoes I wear. These are the Nike Pegasus shoes, and they've got that special air chamber inside of the heel that cushions my foot and, and makes it just bounce back up. All i got to do is get it on the pavement, and it comes back up automatically because the air just goes boing, you know, and then it just, I don't even have any effort. I feel like I'm on a pogo stick, you know, two pogo sticks just running along there. And so, you know, and, and, and actually, I don't even wear pants like this either, but, you know, I won't take them off. Here's the... <laughs> I wear pants like this. I know I've already crossed the line too far and Steve's going to get a big lecture about what Tom did up there. <laughs> and so I wear these and, uh, and see, they have the Nike swoosh there and, and uh, they just help me uh, run along. That relates a lot to Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, 
And let us run with perseverance that's been set before us. Let's go for it. Go for it with all that we have, with all of our strength, even when we don't feel like getting up. There's many times when I don't feel like going out and jogging on a certain day. And it's only discipline that causes me because I know I have a a greater goal in mind. And all of my running I do now is geared towards my annual big run that I do. (laughs) So I've got to stay fit. But I also love the time alone, to be alone with the Lord when I'm out running and just spend time with Him and meditating. And I've I've learned so much... uh, through that time. When I was in seminary, I memorized all my Greek and Hebrew when I was out running. All of it. With flashcards. Uh, uh, and I had to watch what direction I was going so I didn't run into a tree, you know, when I was looking at the notes. But go for it for him. I mentioned Ortberg in his book, you know, if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. And where he talks about this type W, water walk, walking personality. And in that book, he also says that Your gift to God is your willingness to get out of the boat. To get out of your comfort zone. That's your gift to God. And you know what God's gift back to you is? It's the joy of walking on the water. The thrill of being on the water. With Him empowering that to happen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You for this time we've had together this morning. I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the example of the Apostle Paul, to the example of Jesus Christ and His perseverance and His determination to go all the way to Calvary, to give His life in order to redeem us, to offer His blood on our behalf, to pay a ransom that we could never pay, that we could have eternal life and have a purpose-filled life even now because of the strength that we receive and the abundant life that we get through Him. I pray that each one of us would seek to go for it, for You, with all that we have, with all that You've given us, and call upon Your power as we grow closer to You through spending time with You, and as Your Spirit fills us day by day, empowering us with that living water and bread that can come from heaven. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.